Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast, where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles, from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. Well, it's Christmas Day 2006. The temperature in Los Angeles is supposed to get up to 78 degrees. Go figure. What you're about to hear is Class 2, Part 1, of an extension class I taught at Loyola Marymount University. And the class was entitled Integrating Buddhist Practices into Everyday Life. It was a four-week class, and it ran from September 28th to October 19th, 2006. More than anything else, it's an overview of the Buddhist path, as well as an introduction to a Buddhist way of life. So, this is Class 2, Part 1 of a four part class I taught at Loyola Marymount University titled Integrating Buddhist Practices into Everyday Life. So any questions from last week? I mean, does, did it all sort of sink in? Did everybody get their parking uh, sticker? Okay. I got mine. I can, I'm parked in the slash marks. Okay, well, I thought what we could do is just sort of go over a little bit about what we talked about last week and then go into the next part, being peaceful and being happy. And so we could talk about uh, precept practice and meditation practice. And it, does anybody feel chilly with this open? If you do, just tell me. I'll be glad to close it. So um, what we talked about was like everything. So uh, there was this guy. And he, he became called the Buddha. The word Buddha means one who is awake. Uh, his birth name was Siddhartha Gotama. His father was a king. His mother was a queen. Married at 16. Saw the four signs at 19. Old person, sick person, dead person, holy person. At 29, he left his family. For six years, he practiced asceticism, renunciation, meditation. At the age of 35, he achieved nirvana. He taught for 45 years and died at the age of 80. So that's pretty clear. He um, ordained his wife as a nun and ordained his son as a monk. So the whole family uh, eventually became ordained. Um, his teachings are pretty much contained in the Four Noble Truths. Uh, the first truth is that life is ultimately unsatisfactory, but not always unsatisfactory. The second truth is the reason life is unsatisfactory ultimately is because we all have desire, desire to cling and hold to the good stuff and push away the bad stuff. The third uh, truth is nirvana, the end of suffering, the end of desire, the end of all future rebirth. And the fourth truth is uh, the noble eightfold path, the path that leads to the end of suffering, the path that leads to nirvana. So far, so good? Okay. The eightfold path, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. We can take those eight path factors, put them into three categories, personal discipline, mental purification, wisdom. The first category of personal discipline, we find right speech, right action, right livelihood. The second category, hi. The second category of mental purification, meditation, we find right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. The third category, which I don't think I talked about last week, but maybe I did, is the wisdom category, and we have the last two path factors in that category, and they are right view and right intention. Right view would be understanding the four noble truths at a relative level and an ultimate level. Right intention would be to have the intention of loving kindness, to have the intention of compassion, and to have the intention of generosity. It is said the intention we have leads our speech and action into the world. So if we have a skillful intention, we will have skillful speech and action. If we have an unskillful intention, we will have unskillful speech and action.
That's pretty much the whole thing. Now, a couple things that I, I might have talked about but just sort of uh, glossed over would be uh, Buddhists do believe in God. Some Buddhists don't believe in God. Some Buddhists don't know. Some Buddhists think uh, God created the world. Some Buddhists think uh, Big Bang and evolution, or whatever is the current theory, is the one to go with, and some Buddhists don't know. Um, Buddhists do go to heaven. They go to Buddhist heaven, though. They don't go to Christian heaven. And Buddhists go to heaven uh, not because of what they believe in, but because of what they think, say, and do. Their karma determines their next place of existence, heaven, hell, or maybe a human rebirth. Um, maybe a human rebirth. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah, it's really... Hi. Yeah, the actual... The, the part about being reborn as a human being is really important for the bodhisattva ideal. In the second, in the second uh, tradition of Buddhism that came about around the first century, the great vehicle, the Mahayana tradition... They really want to be bodhisattvas. They don't want to be arahants. And, and so it's, it's important that they try to come back as a human being. And they take a vow to be reborn again and again as a human being until all sentient beings are saved. So everything they do... So they don't really want to go to heaven because there's no one to save in heaven. Some choose to go to hell. There are bodhisattvas who choose to go to hell. And they go there because everybody suffers, so they have much work to do. And so being reborn as a human being, of course, allows them to have some work as well. Now, I guess I should take um, the... Uh, uh, make sure everybody's here. Roll call. That's what I should do. And then we'll continue. Okay. Roll call. <laughs> Here we go. I think another interesting aspect of Buddhism is that we don't have justice in Buddhism. Uh, and everybody really likes the idea of justice. Uh, but uh, we have karma instead. So we have no divine lawgiver to determine for us what is right and wrong. Uh, instead, we have karma and more suffering or less suffering. And I tell you, if you, if you start to look at it in that way, there really, it takes just a burden off your shoulders. Because you know everybody will get their comeuppance eventually. Karma is like this law. And so you don't really need to be so fixated on justice and penalties. and You just need to go on to the next thing. You know? But because we uh, are pretty much uh, Christian, Jewish, or Muslim, and the law and justice does play a big part. And one of my articles, one of the articles on the website, Urban Dharma, is about that. So if you're interested in this justice aspect, the difference between Christian justice and Buddhist karma, the similarities and changes, differences. Okay, and we were talking, too, about peace and being happy last week. And, uh, and you know, I, I gave a talk at a, a Christian, a Church of Religion Science on being happy from a Buddhist perspective. And so I did some research, and I wanted to find out what it meant to be happy as a Buddhist. Was it the same thing as being happy as, like, you know, um, a person from Milwaukee? Are they happy in the same way that a Buddhist would be happy? And as it turns out, probably not. But it came to me that there might be three ways to be happy. And, and the first happiness would come from the things we own or think we own. And so being the good consumers that we are... Um, we oftentimes will just collect a whole lot of stuff. And, and I know if I have some special stuff that I'm really attached to, it does make me feel happy. 
I, it makes me feel happy and I, and I want to show it to people and share it with people and say, look what I have. Isn't this wonderful? To see if they get happy for me having it and being happy. Unfortunately, that doesn't seem to work too good because they might get jealous and want one themselves or might even want to take mine and then I wouldn't be happy anymore. So we can be happy with the things that we have. But it's a temporary happiness because there's always something new coming out that's similar and better. Or the thing that we're really happy with it either gets lost or it breaks, you know, or it's stolen, or it just, you know, loses its sort of attraction for us. So it's a temporary happiness. It's not a permanent happiness. And, and then there's the idea of being happy with who you are. You know, and, and some of us are really sort of like what we're doing or where we're going and the goals we have and the way our life is turning out. And, and so this is sort of like happy with ourself. You know, think of all the great things we've done and all the people we've helped. And, and this self, this ego, this image that I have of myself is, can give me great happiness. It can also give me great sadness, too, if uh, I feel I've been unskillful or haven't done as much as I could have done or should have done. And so it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's hard to balance that with self. It's hard to be happy with self. Things change so quickly. With, when you have things, they change, it seems to me, at a slower pace. But self changes dramatically one moment to the next sometimes. So if you're happy with yourself in the afternoon, you may be dissatisfied with yourself in the evening because you screwed up between the afternoon and the evening. Maybe you took the wrong off-ramp, you know, and ended up in Tarzana. And you're thinking to yourself, what's wrong with me? And so that self-satisfaction is turned into self-dissatisfaction. So, but I still haven't found out what the Buddhists were happy about. What makes a Buddhist happy? And as it turns out, the best happiness a Buddhist could have would be doing something for others being of service to others, being generous to others. That that allows the Buddhist to feel good. That allows the Buddhist to feel happy. That, that perhaps sense of selflessness that's required in true generosity. I had a, a, a high school student ask me one time, well, how do you practice generosity? And, you know, what's the best way to do it? And I said, well, this is how I practice generosity. This is how I started. I, I would find these, uh, you know, um, machines, like the one right out there with the sodas, and I would put the money in, and I wouldn't take the change back. I just let the change fall and the change return and stay there, and I would walk away. And I wouldn't know who would pick it up or what they'd use it for. I was just giving the change to the universe in sort of... Uh, that was about the best I could do when I began. And, and then I, I got a little better. And then some people, sometimes people in my neighborhood ask me for money. And there's a lot of people that need money in my neighborhood. And sometimes I'll give them money. But I don't give them money because they need it. And I don't care what they're going to do with it. That's not the point of me giving them money. The point of me giving them money is... I am practicing generosity. And I am practicing generosity so I will have less greed. It's a very selfish way of giving initially. Then, as I became better at giving to people so I could be less greedy, I realized that in some ultimate way I was actually giving the money to myself. That, that we are connected. That person... I was giving the money to, we were connected. So I wasn't really giving it to them, I was giving it to me in some ultimate way. And it didn't, again, matter what I did with it. If I bought drugs or alcohol or cheeseburgers, it had the same value. The point was that you needed to practice generosity. So sometimes just leaving money behind is enough to get you started. Now, I know some people give people money because they feel good about it. They feel that they're helping the person. But then there's oftentimes restrictions on the money that they give. They tell the person, don't buy drugs with this money. I'm giving you this money for this reason. 
But is that real generosity? Is that unconditional generosity? Or is that conditional generosity? In the same way we have unconditional love and conditional love. So in order for me to practice, I needed to find some change returns. And I just needed to leave the money behind. And then I, yes? Why, why do you need to practice generosity? Why do I need to practice generosity? Uh, because we have greed. And generosity is one of the best ways to uh, lessen our greed and eventually get rid of it. Now, it's, it's set up in the early Buddhist tradition of Theravada, where the monks were dependent on the lay people for their food. They had to go into the villages and get the food. So the lay people needed to practice generosity so the monks could eat. And the monks were making themselves available for the practice of generosity, which I thought was sort of an interesting way of looking at it. This past um, Sunday, I was at a Buddhist temple in Pasadena, and the abbot of of the temple was turning 80 years old, and this was his birthday party. And a hundred or so lay people had cooked the best Sri Lankan food you have ever tasted or smelled. It was just wonderful. And... Monks were invited from all over the city, and and all the monks were lined up at this giant table. And the lay people would go from monk to monk, plate to plate, making offerings of food. Well, when it first starts out, it's great, because you're really hungry, you know, and it smells really good. And now, but the, the line continues, and you have little portions of food being put on your plate for like 20 or 30 minutes, and pretty soon your plate's like this big. And you say to yourself, I'm never going to be able to eat all this food. It's going to go to waste. Now, at this point, they're offering you food so they gain merit, so they can spend their merit in a future lifetime, or maybe even in this lifetime. Is it appropriate to say, no, I I can't eat anything else because you don't want to waste the food? But then you're preventing them from getting merit and practicing generosity. So most of the monks just let them pile the food on their plate, and they ate as much as they could, and they just left the rest behind. But that way, the lay people could get merit and practice generosity. So the monks are a vehicle for that. And it's really an odd feeling for people to give you things. You know, Initially, they, they might give you, like, if you give a talk, they might give you a dollar. You know, and it's a great talk. Here's a dollar. And you go, oh, thank you, thank you. And, of course, the idea of the talk was not to get the dollar. But they felt that they wanted to be generous. And so they give you a dollar. And are they giving you a dollar or are they giving a dollar because they're practicing generosity so they have less green? And you're just the object of their generosity that day or that week. No, no, it, the merit increases with the intention in which you give. If you can give your money unconditionally to the person you're giving it to, you get more merit. But if you have conditions on that money, you get less merit. Wouldn't it be also the level of, of sacrifice? That a dollar would be a lot of money to some people, but not much to somebody else. I mean, Yes. Well, in, in one respect, yeah. Um, the value, again, it doesn't have as much value as the intention behind the giving. And some people don't have any money to give away. But you know what they could give away instead of money? is time. They could actually sit down and listen to you speak <laughs> and pretend they're interested. That's a great way to practice generosity. Yes. Yeah, time is part of it. Food, yeah, food is good, money is good. Volunteers. Yeah. Yeah, so in, in, in one respect, to really be happy, what we need to do is find some way to volunteer our time to people who could put it to good use. You know, has, has anybody been a volunteer here? Yeah? Okay, wow. And is there a certain sense of satisfaction? I'm sure there is. I've been a volunteer for years now myself. And no matter how much money they would have given you for that, it wouldn't be the same. There's not just about being there. What I like about volunteering, too, is you can leave. 
you know? Because <laughs> we're not signing any paychecks. So. Don't you feel a sense of pressure that you're getting too involved in somebody else's life if you have to take everything that they want to offer you in order for them to get their merit when it's something that you don't particularly want or need? <laughs> then you're yeah. in their world, too. Like, instead of just living your own life, now you're taking on someone else's. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly right. And well, you have those dynamics, and the idea is eventually you don't have a life. Your life is determined by all those around you, and how you interact with them. That's what happens eventually. You actually transcend your life. And I know most people don't want to do that because they sort of like their lives. And uh, but you know when I, when I think of Mother Teresa, you know, in India. She didn't really have much of her own life. She seemed to live a life of service. And, and she was really good at that. The problem is, though, when you live a life of service like Mother Teresa, you never get a chance to take a vacation. You know? Now, I imagine maybe Mother Teresa would want to go to Hawaii and just sort of hang out on the beach. But you know what she would probably do is look for sunburn victims and, and be of assistance to them. You know? So at, at, at some point, in your life, if you choose the path of the Bodhisattva, your life becomes a life of service. And Pema Chodron, I think, that is a perfect example. That she, when she spoke uh, to Bill Moyers on that program, she, you could tell that, that she had had a life. She had been a mother and she had been a wife and she you know, worked and she had done a lot of stuff. But, but now the life that she had was really in service to others. In, in a very special way, which meant that she didn't have much of a life. But, you know, um, that comes with time, feeling comfortable with not having a life or letting your life be determined by those who need you. Now, the problem is sometimes that you can get too involved in the other person's life, and it's almost like psychic vampires. They just take all your good intentions and energy and leave you dry. Suck to dry. And you have, you can't even get out of bed. You're just so tired. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. So you, you, you sort of have to guard yourself if somebody really needs you too much. You know, there is this sort of thing, well, do you give them fish or do you teach them how to fish? You know, and there's this so that initially, sometimes when people move into our center, they have a lot of needs. They're moving into our center because of some issues they're trying to deal with. And they think that a meditation center would be a great place because everybody is working on themselves and, and better than normal. <laughs> you know? But if everybody at the meditation center is there because they're trying to get well, it can turn out to be like a psychiatric ward. And if you go to a lot of Buddhist centers in Asia, sometimes you just find some really unique people hanging out, helping out, <coughs> trying to get better. So maybe a meditation center is not the best place to go to get well. But it sure can be a challenge to allow you to see how you're doing in comparison to others, allow you to see how it feels to be congratulated last and condemned first, just like a family. How it keeps you centered and balanced. If you live alone, sometimes you can pretend life is any way you want it to be and walk out into the world and feel like a victor. And, and But if you live in a community, if you live in a family, you always have those sort of... Um, you, you have those times when you are put in your place for instance. If you're too high, they might bring you down. And if you're too low, they might build you up. To get that nice medium place. So some people move into meditation center for that reason. And it can be very difficult. So I better be careful when somebody is hanging around too much. Or if somebody comes up and just sort of stares in my eyes for a long time, wanting to see if I'm enlightened. And I'm just going, you know. It doesn't take long to realize that I'm not. Uh, but, but we have these ideas about people who are spiritual, who are religious, who are practicing. And sometimes those ideas get in the way of really understanding what it's all about. And for me, Buddhism has always been about finding that place inside of me that's peaceful, finding that place inside of me that's happy. 
And finding that place inside of me that's always been there, but it's covered up with lust, greed, hatred, and delusion. So my job is to get rid of all that stuff. And one of the ways to get rid of greed is to practice generosity. Yeah. So happiness is an inside job, as it turns out. Nothing out there will make us happy very long. Temporary happiness. And one of the best ways to be happy is to practice the five precepts. So I want to talk a little bit about that. And when I say practice the five precepts, you know, you don't have to be a Buddhist to practice the five precepts. You just need to be sort of a, a human being that's trying to be more skillful. And, and the first precept uh, that you might want to practice, you might look at it as, a, as like a little class project. Well, for one week, I'm going to try to hold the five precepts and, and see if I can hold them and not break them. So the first precept is not to take life. And we can start big, and, and, and so for a whole week, uh, not take a human life. And, and I bet we can all do it. And, and, and then maybe in the following weeks, you could work, you know, go down to sort of food chain to get to those ants and cockroaches and mosquitoes. Those are the tough ones not to take their lives because they're so insignificant, you know. I mean, what kind of life does a cockroach have anyway? And they shouldn't be in the house. They shouldn't be by the food. I'm going to eat that food. I can't catch him. He's far too fast. Maybe I can just kill him, and that'll be the end of the story. You know? But if you're practicing not to kill, you, you need to take just that one moment to see how important life is, even to a cockroach. Because if you try to kill them, they'll run away. They think their life is important, even the cockroach. And so when I started to practice not killing, the thing that came to my mind first was it takes an awful lot of time not to kill. Killing is really a quick and easy way to, to solve a problem because it just sort of takes it away forever until they catch you. But, you know, and I think when you look at all the movies and all the TV shows, out, everybody's killing each other. It's just amazing how many people are killing each other. And it's for anger, hatred, solving a problem. You know, and then CSI has to go solve it. And we spend an hour watching them solve it. Oh, yes. And I can't understand why we're killing children now. There seems to be a a trend, we're going to kill children. You know, the, the most vulnerable of them all. And I just, it's an odd series of events that we are living through right now. And um, I don't know what the meaning is, but it seems to me that we've lost our way somehow. And wouldn't it be cool, rather than putting the Ten Commandments in Congress, to put the five precepts on the wall? Not to kill, not to steal, no sexual misconduct, not to lie, (laughs) and not to consume intoxicants. You know? Those five precepts on the wall of Congress would change the United States. But I'm not going to suggest that they do that, because it's a religious thing, and we don't want that. So so the first precept, not to kill. If you can figure out how not to kill for a whole week, and, and see what that means. What does it mean not to kill? You know, especially the mosquito. I had one last night, three in the morning. And I tell you, you know, I just... that. That sound of the mosquito is just threatening to me. Because I realize if the sound stops, I'll be itching a few moments later. And there I am, you know, until finally the itch goes away. I'm thinking, okay, well, it's well fed now, but now look at this bump on my arm. You know, and so you sort of crawl under the covers maybe. You know, you figure they can't get through the, the blanket or something, you know. And then I've got a cat that sleeps right next to me in my bed. I'm thinking, why doesn't the mosquito go for the cat? Well, the cat has fur, you know. And there I am, the sort of naked human with no fur. I'm an easy target. Yes. What about flea collars? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that would be good. Okay. And the flea collar spraying would be good. Well, and, but but in a way now that's sort of killing them in. Uh, uh, in a future or past way, you know, instead of a present moment way. So how can we get rid of them? Or how can we live with them? Can we make an offering of our blood to them? 
and say, okay, they just need this one meal and then they'll leave me alone. And can I offer it to them? And can you, in your mind, just instead of hating them and wanting to kill them, say, okay, take your meal and leave me alone. And then you go back to sleep and then you start itching. Can you do that? Or can you turn on the lights? Because they don't like lights sometimes. Can you sleep with the lights on? I know when I was in Sri Lanka, 1995, we left the lights and the fan on the whole night to keep the mosquitoes away. You know, and it almost worked. You know, they still got me, but it almost worked. How about a mosquito net? You know, REI—they've got a great one down in Santa Monica now. I bet you could find a mosquito net for your bed and just sort of you know have it from the ceiling covering your bed. Another way to when you start to think. How can I not kill it, but still be comfortable? Our minds are just really fascinating. They come up with so many ideas. A lot of them just don't work at all. But the mind, that's its main job, is to have to find solutions to these issues in our life. So not killing can be a big deal if you have a thousand ants. How do you get rid of a thousand ants and not kill one? You know? Well, I don't think you can. You may have to kill a few. But if you have to kill them, you could think about their lives and their rebirth and realize you're not doing it because you hate the ants, but doing it because you need to have a clean kitchen. So the intention, again, is the biggest part of this. If you have to kill them, can you kill them without hating them? Stealing. Can you can you not take stuff for a whole week? Now, most of us probably think, well, that'd, that'd be no problem. But how about if you go to a restaurant and they have ketchup on the table? And now you're going to be practicing not to take what is not offered, and the waitress didn't offer you the ketchup. So the waitress comes by your table and you say, excuse me. She goes, yes. Would you mind if I use the ketchup? And she'd go, oh, you nuts. That's why it's there. Not to take anything that's not offered. Could you go through a whole week and do that? You know? So you've got, you're going to have, you, you might want to have people around you offering you things. You know? Like say there's some free newspapers, but nobody's offered you the free newspapers, like the Loyola little newspaper. So it wouldn't be okay to take it. You'd have to get somebody to offer it to you. How would that change your life? It would slow down a lot, wouldn't it? <laughs> and one of the stories, I might have told it last week, I can't remember, of um, my friends from uh, Abiyagiri up in Northern California. This is the Thai forest tradition, and they're generally Canadian, English, or American. And they live... Uh, a strict code of Vinaya. They they live um, by the rule, and it's just amazing to see them eat, because they can't eat unless food is offered to them. So they always have a layperson with them when they travel to offer them food or water, because they can't even drink water unless it's offered to them, even if they're thirsty. And if they're traveling and there's nobody to offer them food, they don't eat. So, yeah. Uh, it can, if the, nobody offers you food for a while, it sure can. If you're, you know, in the forest for, you know, a single person in the forest and you have to survive, I mean, are you, does Buddhism say that you're just supposed to kind of shrivel up and die because no one's offering you to... That's a good question. Okay, I like that. That's, well, uh, that's why the, the forest monks oftentimes stay close to villages because they go into the village and beg for food. Can you beg? Yes. You just have to sort of look really hungry and wait for somebody to Well, well, yes. And, and, <laughs> and what you do is you go and stand in front of the house with your begging bowl, and you open up the lid, and you look down, and you wait until the person in the house realizes it's, isn't that amazing? And you wait. And, and if you're in the right country in, and in the right village, there's no problem. Because they know what they're supposed to do. In America, it's a little different. 
Can you imagine going to like Van Nuys and get you would get arrested, you know, loitering, waiting for food. Not you know, you, and, and you aren't allowed to ask for it. And you're not supposed to have eye contact either. And you're not supposed to show any emotion about the food. You're supposed to have this equanimity, this perfect balance. So if it's like freshly made or three days old, you, you have this equanimity about it. It's a very different way of living in the world. So at one of the conferences, one of the monks had this really nice apple, and another monk from another tradition picked up the apple and admired it and said, you're lucky to get this apple and put it back down on the table. And now the monk who initially owned it couldn't eat it because ownership had been transferred to the second monk who picked it up. Now, the second monk didn't know that, but there was a layperson who saw the exchange and re-offered the apple back to the first monk so he could eat it. Now, the moral of that story is don't touch a monk's food because you own it then, you know, depending on the tradition. But very difficult, yes. What's the benefit of that thing? <laughs> no, what are you yeah. what, I mean, giving versus stealing? Is it, the, again, the kind of the... Well, we, give, we have to steal and we steal and so we have to give. I mean, what's the... I would think... I'm asking the why, I guess. I understand, and those are my favorite questions, too. I would think it has a lot to do with ownership. Do we own the food that we just bought? Well, we have a receipt. And in our way of looking at the world, yeah, that means I own this food. It's mine. I own the car because I have a registration and a bill of sale. But do we really own it or do we just sort of use it? And and in the community, uh, in, in the forest community especially, uh, it's not allowed to have any food at all with you after lunch. They have cooties that they live in, these little small homes, little, little houses. Just a, about enough room to stretch out, and that's it. And they're not allowed to bring any food back to the cooties. The only food they have stays there in the kitchen, and then it's offered to them. They can have snacks in the afternoon. They only eat breakfast and lunch. They don't eat after 12 o'clock. And they can have snacks in the afternoon. And the snacks they're allowed to have are, aren't nutritious. They're like candies and stuff. You know, it'd be better to have power bars, but that's like real food. So they're practicing, um, they're practicing fasting, actually, by not eating after 12 o'clock. It's one of the dutangas, one of the ascetic practices that the Buddha allowed to, to happen if you're a monk. And there's 13 dutangas, there's 13 ascetic practices that monks can do, and one of them is not eating after 12 o'clock. When you start to look at your food, for instance, in that way, I think what you're, you're doing is eventually you're going away from liking your food or really wanting to have nice food and looking at your food as simply the thing that keeps you alive so you can practice the Dharma. You're not attached to it, theoretically. <clears throat> taking away the desire for it and looking at food as medicine. It's your medicine. It's what keeps you alive. And, and of course, that's not encouraged in our culture. We have restaurants and we have high prices and we have paintings on the wall and sometimes people playing piano and, and we eat in this wonderful setting and we think, oh, this is life, you know. Well, eating is very social in America. I mean, Nothing to do with just keeping it alive. It doesn't seem to, no. And a lot of the stuff we're eating isn't very good for us anyway. You know, it's keeping us alive, but not very well. So, so what I find when when the monks eat, you know, and I had a chance to eat with them, and and I had a begging bowl. They they eat out of the begging bowls, and when you look in the begging bowl, it looks like your stomach. Just a bunch of food all in there. It's very it's very interesting, and all the tastes. All the smells are sort of like mixed in with all the other tastes and smells. And so it's hard to get those separate tastes, like that chocolate cake. I mentioned that. (laughs) It's it's hard to get all those separate tastes out of that. So that sort of takes away your desire from having a really good meal too, isn't it? So one of the ways of not stealing is, you know, not to accept things that weren't offered. But if you didn't want to go that far, you could simply not, you know, take the pencil on the table that was left behind. 
Or, you know, or you see a dollar on the ground. Somebody left a dollar. I was at a gas station the other day getting gas, and there was a dollar right there next to the pump. And I imagine somebody had reached in and pulled out the, you know, and just fallen there. And I didn't take it. I was just going to leave it for somebody else who needed it more than I did. But it was interesting, you know. And then on my motorcycle, I'm going down the 10 freeway, and there's like a lot of traffic. We're all going about 20 miles an hour. And right in the lane next to me is this $5 bill that's been folded over. It's just lying there. I don't know how it flew out of the car, but there it was. And I'm thinking, wow, I could stop right now and pick it up. And just, you know. But I continued to go on because that wasn't my $5. And Do you look at that also as generosity? Yes. Leaving it behind for someone else, yeah, yeah. But not having any conditions on it, you know. No matter who picks it up, they can do whatever they want with it. And to be generous, you don't have to have ownership. To be generous, you don't have to have ownership. You have to have intention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, again, the intention thing really is important. Sexual misconduct. You know, uh, some of you may remember this, and some of you probably won't, but Jimmy Carter used to be our president. And I, I had a chance to see him up in Westwood after he had written a book a couple of years ago. He was, had a book signing, so I got it from my mother. And I had a chance to go up and get it signed by him. And I looked in his eyes, and they sparkled. They just sparkled. He really has a good inside. And people may look at him as not being much of a president, but what he's done after the presidency has made a difference in the world, I think. But he was, he was doing a Playboy interview and he said, I sometimes have lustful thoughts of other women. Never manifested physically, but sometimes thinking about them, you know, uh, not in a loving way. And I can remember when I was practicing and still practice the third precept, not to indulge in sexual misconduct. I'm thinking to myself, how am I doing? You know, do I, do I love women or do I lust them? And so I challenged myself one night. I had a cassette of Jennifer Lopez and a a rather provocative picture on the front. And I looked at Jennifer and I said, do I love you or lust you? Do I want to be kind to you? I said to myself. And kindness was not my first intention. (laughs) So I saw that, you know, Avoiding sexual misconduct has a lot to do with the mind as well as the body. The body is the most obvious, you know, and we have many, many precepts that are designed uh, to keep us from getting uh, involved with other human beings in a sexual way. Not because it's wrong, but because it complicates your life rather than simplifies your life. And the monastic lifestyle is one that leads you in the direction of simplicity, of non-attachment, of freedom. And you're not going to be... Yes? Now, this sexual misconduct has nothing to do with abstinence, does it? No, no. It could, but certainly not necessarily. Yeah, and, and I, I find most people are abstinent, not necessarily by choice, but circumstance. And so, it's not like, okay, I, I have sex every night, so for one week I'm not going to have sex. You know, it's like, uh, I want to investigate it. I want to see what happens. Am I in a committed relationship? Do I love the person I'm about to have sex with? Am I always kind to them? Which is one indication, I think, that you love that person. So, in my mind, you could be in love with everyone. And that love could be expressed through kindness to everyone. Um, So it's not necessarily abstinence. The Buddha has said, according to Bhikkhu Bodhi in the Eightfold Path, which is available for download, if you want to look at the Eightfold Path, he said that um, if you're going to have sex, don't have sex with with people who are married, don't have sex with people who are engaged, don't have sex with people who are being supported by their parents, children, and don't have sex with people against their will. That's pretty much what the Buddha said about that to lay people. Now, when it comes to monastics, he said a whole lot of other stuff. So could you, in an intimate relationship, abide by those four sort of ideals? You know, 
uh, is the person you're in love with married and you still want to have sex with them? Well, that creates an awful lot of suffering in the world. You know, are they engaged? Married to somebody, exactly. 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 So, so that would be maybe one, one way to start. You know, I mean, abstinence is sort of like, um, it, it seems uh, over the top. But I have spoken to people who said, I'm going to be abstinent for a year, just to see what it's like. Just to see how that changes my relationships to other people. And if you go into a relationship with the thought of abstinence, then you're going into a relationship as a partner, as a friend, as a buddy, like a brother and a sister, aunt or uncle. It's a very interesting shift. That dynamic changes completely. And I found for myself, when I go into a relationship now, uh, because I'm a monastic, um, they're generally speaking much more intimate than before when I was involved in sexual activity. There's a certain sharing and a safety that, that there's not this power struggle uh, occurring, that it's simply uh, two human beings coming together and sharing their likes and dislikes, their successes and failures. It's a wonderful thing. And then you leave, you know. In my case, I go back to the center. That person goes where they go. Yes? Um, the the um, recording talked about tantra or tantric practices. Yes. How does that work with this? It doesn't. <laughs> and and uh, most of the like Tibetan monks that I've talked to wouldn't encourage Westerners to practice tantric Buddhism because we're just not that skilled, you know. And and I don't think it really works very well myself because it's such a powerful desire and emotion. And to use that as your vehicle of enlightenment, you could be deluding yourself, thinking you're really making great progress, and you have three <laughs> consorts, you know, around you. And I'm thinking, yeah. So um, most of the monks I've talked to don't even teach it. The people teaching that seem to be lay people. And it doesn't seem to lead to too much enlightenment. Now, that's my personal opinion. But it is found in some traditions. And it's a very advanced practice. And, and monks and, and nuns can't really involve themselves in it because they've chosen celibacy. So you'd have to be like a lama. Lamas aren't really celibate or don't need to be celibate. They're like an advanced teacher in the Tibetan tradition. Um, and um, so they may decide. They're oftentimes married or have consorts and then may practice that. But I, I'm old school, you know, and I'm just thinking it's just too powerful. It's like Pandora's box. You open that up and, and try to get enlightened, and it just seduces you and deludes you. So that's my perspective on that. But it is, a, it is on that recording, and there, there is a, a part of Buddhism that that applies to. So sexual misconduct could also just mean I'm going to be kind to people for a whole week, whether I love them or not. I'm going to be kind to everyone I come in contact with. I'm going to try to open my heart and not be angry or not be in a power struggle and not want to be in control, but just be kind. So that's another way to approach it. Question? You have a thoughtful look on your face. Okay. The, the, the third one, not telling lies. In, in monastic tradition, it's not lying about your spiritual attainments. That would be considered telling a lie in, for a monastic. But, but to tell a lie about something to another human being is really undermining their reality. Now you're sort of taking some of that support away from them, and you're saying, well, maybe it's true, maybe it's not true. And I tell you, they had a great um, two-hour program last night on PBS about Jack Abramoff. Did you see that? Well, gosh, I tell you. But talk about manipulating reality, you know, and it's just you amazing. Have written anything better. I mean, no, you couldn't. The twists and turns, and the money, and the, uh, all that stuff, and the intentions behind it. So, 
the problem with lying is it undermines reality. And, and sometimes, uh, rather than lying, it's better to take or choose noble silence. Maybe not say anything at all. You know? And I find that's, in my own case, probably a better way to go. I know sometimes at the center where I live, I might get into a debate or discussion with some of the residents and realize it won't come to any satisfactory conclusion. They're not going to change my mind. I'm not going to change their mind. And I have to just sort of let it go at that and walk away. And that's difficult sometimes, especially if you know you're right and they're wrong. But then, of course, the big picture is, how the heck do you know if you're right? <laughs> but you know it, deep down inside. And then you just sort of have to leave. It's, or rather than lying to them and say, yes, I agree with you, you're absolutely right. Even if you don't believe it. Even if you know that they're wrong. That's so difficult. But that's not being honest with yourself. Really it's not being honest with yourself, exactly, yeah. So can we lie to ourselves sometimes? I often do. Look in the mirror and say, my, my, look how, look how, look how it looks today. You know, maybe that's not a lie. Maybe that's just a delusion. But, um, yeah, you can't lie to yourself and you can't lie to other people. And that can be difficult. So, um, what, lying to yourself, saying you did a good job and you, you just gave it half a, a shot? Lying to yourself, saying, gosh, you know, I really, I really pulled this out and nobody picked up on it. Or lying to yourself and saying, well, this was the right thing to do when there were so many other viewpoints. And perhaps this wasn't the right thing to do. And perhaps if you had just a little more information, you would have known that to be the case. It gets pretty subtle. And at some point, um, I suppose we don't know what the truth is and what the truth isn't. And is that okay? Yes? Do you remember Mork and Mindy back in the 70s? <coughs> One of the best lines that came out of that TV show was Mork saying, reality, what a concept. Yeah. I love that line. Yes, and, and, and at that point, I just cracked up. When I heard that the first time, I just cracked up. I said, what a funny thing to say. Don't we all know what reality is? And then that's where I was then, you know. And now as my reality keeps shifting... We have the internal reality, we have the external reality, we have the consensus that creates reality. You know, we'll all believe in this, and that will make it so. You know, sort of cultural literacy, if you will. But is that, is that reality? Is that truth? Or is it? What Buddhism says about reality is there are, there are two levels to reality. There's a relative reality and there's an ultimate reality. And the relative reality is the one we sort of live with every day. Our sense doors uh, take in the information, our ego, our sense of self creates the story. Um, sometimes we have other people helping us create reality, making it true or not true. And, but then there's this sort of ultimate reality in Buddhism. And the ultimate reality in Buddhism is that, uh, that everything is sort of connected and interdependent, and none of that stuff has its own value or meaning. And so now, you really sort of, when you start practicing meditation and understanding the Buddhist philosophy, you start to see that you really, to be a good Buddhist, you sort of need to have one foot in the ultimate and one foot in the relative. And neither one are, are, you know, the only source of your truth. You know, I, um, there was a, a Buddhist who had great devotion in Kuan Yin Bodhisattva. Great devotion in Kuan Yin Bodhisattva. And at one point, he was on the freeway and running out of gas. 
and prayed to Kuan Yin Bodhisattva to fill his tank before he ran out of gas. And he ran out of gas. And so I'm thinking, okay, well, this is a perfect example of relative reality and ultimate reality. Sometimes the relative reality determines or dictates that we stop off at the gas station. That no matter how much devotion or faith we have in Kuan Yin Bodhisattva to fill our tank, it's not going to work. It just isn't going to work. There was a, a, um, a retreat at Zen Center of Los Angeles, which is just about seven blocks away from where I live. And uh, it was a week-long retreat. And I, and I still remember this so vividly. We were having a uh, Buddhist Peace Fellowship meeting. And some of the people from the retreat came to the meeting. And then we decided to go out and get some food about halfway through the meeting to get some energy to continue the meeting. And so we went to a fast food restaurant in Koreatown. And none of those people who had come from that retreat could make a decision on what they wanted to eat. Because they were looking at how everything was so interconnected and interdependent. And they saw the cause and consequence of each of those entrees. And so it was a, a process that took forever to finally decide what they wanted to eat. And I'm thinking to myself, this is an issue. Going into retreat and then coming out and trying to grasp relative reality again and making a choice and making a decision and not having it be the end or the beginning of the world. It's just food, after all. That was the way I was looking at it. And I had already planned what I was going to get. And yet I was watching all these you know, considerations. I was on a monastic retreat in... Uh, Vajrapani, which is up in Northern California. It's a Tibetan retreat center. And they had a man and a woman, husband and wife, who had been in retreat for three years and not talked to each other or anybody for three years. And they had just come out of retreat. And they were going to give a presentation to the assembled monks and nuns at this conference about what it's like to be on retreat for three years. And they had been out for like three or four days. It was just They had just gotten out. And so they, they come in, and they move really slow. And they just sort of took their places at the, at the end of the room, and we all sat, and I had some questions I was getting ready to ask and stuff. And they started to talk, and they were just so thoughtful and so slow and so tranquil. And I'm thinking to myself, what kind of work are these people ever going to be able to do after that three-year retreat? Whereas it turned out they're going back into retreat. <laughs> they're going to do retreats. <laughs> but isn't that interesting? And, and I've noticed some beginning meditators, when they start to get really good at their meditation practice, that it, they start to see things in a more global way, if you will. They start to see the cause and consequence of everything they think, say, and do. And they're very sensitive to those issues. And sometimes you really just got to put the blinders on, go in, order your fries, and leave. It's sometimes you just can't use that extra time to see how this relates to everything else in the world. And Ramdas often talks about, one of my favorite teachers, by the way, often talks about the dance that he does, one foot in the relative, one foot in the ultimate. That... The beginning meditator is still learning about the ultimate. But now when they start to get a handle on that and see how it relates to the relative, now they need to do the dance because they realize they can't live in the ultimate in a relative world. This is a relative world we live in. We can't live in the ultimate. If we do, then people have to take care of us. We become dysfunctional. You know, we have to make choices. There are things to do. And, you know, somebody like Ronald Reagan, who got Alzheimer's, well, what happens when you live only in the present moment and have no past and future? What happens when those things we take for granted just don't work anymore? It stops. You know, it just stops. So this ideal of always, like, living in the ultimate in a state of bliss and happiness and peace... Uh, doesn't work very well because we do sometimes need to be a bit angry or aggressive 
when I'm on the freeway, I'm aggressively defensive because I'm on two wheels and I have no doors. And so I need to avoid being hit by the SUV that doesn't see me. I need to avoid the road hazard in the road. And if I am too peaceful and blissful, I'm not going to be able to handle it. So I've got to be, uh, uh, uh. But I also realize that that's not me. That's just my response to the road hazard or the SUV. It doesn't have to be me. It's just what I've trained myself to do. So can we train ourselves to always love but still raise our voice occasionally? Because that's what's necessary in that particular situation. Can we train ourselves to be kind but seem to be unkind in certain situations because that's what's necessary without any kind of investment on our part? It's really an interesting dilemma we find ourselves in when we take the spiritual path too seriously because it will change us we will not be able to change yet. And I always get a kick out of people who want to change their meditation practice because it's not working for them anymore. And they've been counting their breath now for like a year and they want to go to the next level because now they got that down and nothing's happening. But something is happening. And rather than watching how they're changing, they want to change their meditation practice. But if you keep changing your meditation practice, you won't see how you're changing. So again, this is a very interesting journey we're going to go on. And I'm going to stop now so we can take a break. And then I want to come back and do some meditation, practice some meditation. Okay, the fifth precept. Okay, fifth precept before we take our break. <laughs> fifth precept is not to consume intoxicants. And this is a well. This is this is a tough one for a lot of people. And what's the problem with intoxicants? The problem with intoxicants, they steal our wisdom, and we end up doing stupid things and create so much more suffering for ourselves and others. Now, if you are drinking a six pack a week, and want to practice this precept, it's acceptable to go down to three bottles a week instead of a six pack. You can also look at it, instead of, I'm not going to consume intoxicants, I'm not going to consume intoxicants to the point of intoxication. That's an acceptable place, too. That allows you to get comfortable with the idea that those altered states of consciousness aren't necessarily beneficial. They may seem like fun, they may seem relaxing, but... If you have a daily or weekly meditation practice or yoga practice and you're spending all this time to gain this clarity and awareness, why would you want to, de- to, to dilute that or dissolve that into insanity? You know? Now, again, this is a big deal because oh, there's a lot of things that make us high. You know, uh, for me, Coca-Cola and Hershey's with almonds. That's such a good combination. It makes me so happy. But it does alter my consciousness. It really does. So you that? We don't include that. So I'm still, I'm still eating my Hershey's. What, what we include pretty much are non-prescription drugs and alcohol. Non-prescription? Yeah, it was okay to take prescription drugs. But you could abuse those too. You can. You can. But you know what? If the doctor prescribes them to you, I'm not going to tell you not to take them. You know, if somebody can sit better taking Prozac, okay, fine. There you go. That's a good example, isn't it? In fact, there was this. um, video that I downloaded of these two authors, and they were both psychologists, and they were both meditation practitioners, and one was actually a meditation teacher. And he had a student who kept falling asleep, and she thought, something's wrong with me. I, I just can't even sit for two hours without falling asleep. So she went to the doctor and had a brain scan, MRI, and it turned out she had a mild case of narcolepsy, and the doctor recommended that she take some pills so she could stay awake in meditation. 
And you know what she decided? She decided not to take the pills. She decided that if she's going to have a mild state of narcolepsy, she's just going to fall asleep occasionally while she's meditating. And that was her lot in this life. She was going to work with that. She wasn't going to change it. And I thought that was a really interesting perspective, that she was working with what she had. She came to a place of acceptance, and she wasn't going to change it chemically, even though that was available to her. So we all need to make those decisions in our life. Do we want to work with what we're working with, what we have, or do we want to enhance it? Now, I know they say Barry Bonds is not taking steroids, but he sure is hitting those balls out of the park on a regular basis. Now, is it okay to enhance our physical as well as psychological stuff? I don't know. You know? I don't know. It doesn't make you a better meditator. It doesn't get you enlightened any faster, these chemicals. It just oftentimes becomes an attachment. And Ramdas talks about that a lot when he was, used to take LSD. He used to use it as a launch pad. But he said he, would, he was getting attached to that, that he was getting attached to the vehicle of his liberation. And Buddhism is a raft more than anything else. It's to get us from this shore to the next shore. But only a fool would carry the raft into the forest when there's no water there. So, so this idea of getting attached to your vehicle of liberation, like some people who meditate a lot, you ask them what they do and they say, I meditate. They're so proud that they meditate. Is that attachment? Yeah. Is that good? Well, that becomes a prison after a while. So can we be like the monks who look at food as medicine? Can we look at our spiritual practice as simply the raft we're using in this lifetime to get to the other shore, to get to that perfect mental health, to end our suffering, to have ultimate happiness and peace? I think we can. Let's stop there, take a break, and then we'll do some meditation. Well, that's it. That was Class 2, Part 1 of an extension class I taught at Loyola Marymount University titled Integrating Buddhist Practices into Everyday Life. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. Uh, class 2, Part 2 will be posted soon. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts or interviews I've done with various folks, um, please visit dharmatalks.info. That's dharmatalks.info. If you'd like to download some free Buddhist ebooks and PDF and a 2007 Buddhist calendar, please visit buddhabooks.info. That's buddhabooks.info. I'm teaching another extension class at Loyola Marymount University starting January 11th, 2007. It'll be held on Thursdays from 7.30 to 9.30. If you live in the Los Angeles area and might be interested in taking this class, taking the journey with me, uh, please visit urbandharma.org and scroll to the bottom of the page for more information. Well, um, that's it. Um, hope you found uh, the podcast interesting. Next podcast will be posted soon. So until next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering. <laughs>